Good morning. We are going to explore this morning the, uh, the resurrection of Christ. It's a significant event. It's found in each of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at each one of these um, renditions which are given of the events of Christ's life, at the end of each of these books, the significance of the resurrection is listed. And so for us, it becomes a significant event as well. One that we really don't spend a lot of time on. We, we, we come to it every year, at least once a year, and talk about the significance of the resurrection. Um, and yet it is significant because without the resurrection, we would not have the position that we have uh, before God. Christ's blood was shed, Christ's blood covered man's sin, but it didn't stop there. Because death still had dominion over man. Death and sin still had dominion over God's creation. Now, when the disciples, when Jesus died, the disciples, they were kind of confused about the whole thing. Not that they hadn't been informed. They were informed. Jesus had told them throughout his dealings with them that he had to die. And they kind of got it, but they were confused. Some of them wanted Jesus to establish his kingdom now and to throw out the Romans. Judas was one of those. He wanted um, the uh, kingdom of God to be at that point. Even today, the Jews will go to the Wailing Wall. And there at the Wailing Wall, they will stand there and cry out to God that he would free the Jewish people from all oppression and that the Messiah would come and lift up a nation over all other nations. This is still a belief that the Jews have today those who don't understand the purpose of Jesus Christ still struggled with that. His followers kind of struggled with that as well. If we go back and we look at Scripture, we find that, that, uh, that they were scattered and that they went back to kind of doing some normalcy in life. They didn't quite know what to do. So those who were fishermen, for example, even after Jesus was resurrected and had seen the disciples, um, many of the disciples went back to what they were used to. We don't know what's going on, you know, it's, but life is back to normal, our hero is dead, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, if you turn to the book of John, for example, we have an illustration of that. In the book of John, uh, chapter 21, uh, here we see um, Peter saying to the other disciples, um, so later Jesus appeared, this is after his resurrection, 
uh, he appears several times to the various disciples. It says, later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, and this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, uh, Nathaniel from uh, Cana of Galilee, the sons of Debedee, uh, Zebedee, and, t- and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Now, it's not the type of fishing you do, John, it's because you're a recreational fisherman. He was a fisherman by trade. And so this is what he normally would do, is he would go out and he would fish uh, to bring in a catch so that he could sell that and make a living. And he said, I'm going back, in other words, I'm going back to do what's normal. Uh, Some said with him, well, we'll come too. And so they all went to the boat, but they weren't catching anything. And at dawn, um, the disciples saw Jesus standing on the beach, but they couldn't see who he really was. And so he called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? And they said, no, no, nothing. And then he said, throw your nets out on the right side of the boat, and you'll get plenty of fish. And so they did, and they couldn't draw the net in because there was so much fish in it. Many of the disciples went back to doing what they did before because they didn't understand what happened in regard to Jesus and what was going to happen. But the resurrection should not have been any surprise to any of them. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, um, in Mark chapter 14, 28, and uh, later in 16, verse 7, we see various places within Scripture where uh, Jesus specifically told the disciples that uh, he was going to die and that he was going to be raised up in three days. Let me read for you Matthew uh, 26, 32. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you. He's speaking to the disciples now. He said, after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And this is recorded not one place in Scripture, but several places. Because Jesus constantly told the disciples that this is what was going to happen that he was going to die, but that he would be raised from the dead. And having been raised from the dead, he would then meet with them. So they knew because he told them. And yet they didn't really know because it was beyond or outside of their grasp of understanding. (coughs) Jesus needed to die. Jesus' blood as a sacrificial lamb was offered for the sin of mankind. So um, Colin kind of took us through an understanding of the Passover, the significance of the Passover. We need to remember that God's timing is perfect. And so when we look at the whole of Scripture and we understand God's plan, we see that God put forth in His plan reason and purpose and order for everything. 
It is not uh, an insignificant fact that Jesus died during the Passover. It is not an an insignificant fact that Jesus came during the occupation of the Romans. It is not insignificant that Koine Greek was the form of language which was used at that time, which later, as the church grew, allowed the gospel to spread wide and fast throughout the region because it was familiar to everybody. All of these things are intricate in understanding God's plan. The Passover represents for us an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, that he was the sacrificial lamb, that he would, his, his blood would cover the sins of mankind. And so because of that, he had to come and he had to die. But it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there simply that he died. But the point of the resurrection was that he overcame death. The Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the significance of this. Let me read for you a portion of what the Apostle Paul when he explains when he's talking about the resurrection. Because it is significant in our understanding of believers. Uh, chapter 15 verses 1 through 6. Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached before you. You welcome it then, and uh, still now, for your faith is built on this wonderful message. Count that, that passage. Your faith is built on that wonderful message. And it is this good news that saves you that you firmly believe in it, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed it on to you, what is most important and what has been uh, passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture says, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the Scripture said, He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve apostles, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive today, though some have died and gone on. Let's jump now to uh, verse 12. Again, he's speaking to the difficulty that the church is having in understanding the significance of the resurrection. He says this, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ is raised from the dead, why are some of you saying there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been resurrected either. And if Christ was not raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your trust in God is useless. And we apostles all would be lying about God, for we have said that Christ is raised from the dead from the grave, but that cannot be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still under the condemnation of sin. And in that case... All who have died believing in Christ have perished, 
And all that hope in Christ that there's only life will be the most miserable people of all. Wow. What that really says is, is that the, the resurrection of Christ becomes the foundation for understanding who we are. And it is because he was raised from the dead that we have hope in the future that is before us. And if he didn't raise from the dead, well, you know, you're pitiful. And those who have died before you are pitiful as well. Because what it really means is that they died still in their sin. They died and will stand judgment before God because of their sin. You see, what Scripture teaches is that Jesus Christ stands as our advocate before the Father, and we are covered by His blood, and therefore, because we are covered by His blood, we no longer have to be uh, to succumb to sin. Throughout his life, Jesus taught his disciples that they were to live godly lives. And, and, and as his disciples, they were to understand the world as those who are now no longer bound to sin. The Apostle Paul goes into great detail this in the book of Romans. When Peter stood before the, uh, before the uh, uh, people in the square on Pentecost morning, he preached to them the significance of Christ's coming, and then they cried out and said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Now the word repentance means to turn 180 degrees to recognize that how I've been living is wrong and that it's not productive and so I'm to repent of that that I might do it no longer and turn to a new life. And then when we are baptized, we are baptized into um, recognition, into a fellowship with Jesus Christ himself who died and was raised from the dead. So when we are baptized, we symbolically enter the grave, and then we raise out of the grave into a new life. That's just what Jesus did. And that's why the resurrection is important for a foundation to understand. Because we no longer have to be subject to death. We no longer have to be subject to sin. We can overcome that, and we are called to overcome that. The Christian life is then learning how you overcome that. The event happened. Now what do you do with that event? That is the issue that Christianity faces today. The importance for believers, the Apostle Paul then explains later in chapter 12 is that he says what? Have a new way of thinking, a change of mind. Recognize that you are no longer subject to sin, that sin has died and you put it behind you, that you now live that you might bring glory to Jesus Christ. And so your thinking has to change in the same way. 
This is the call to the church, and it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were not resurrected, then we could not die to sin. But it is because he died to sin and was resurrected that we fellowship with him in that, and that gives us power and strength. Now, throughout his life, Jesus taught his disciples that they were to be, as his disciples, a godly people. They were to take on the perspective and the understanding of what it meant to live for God and not for man. To see God's perspective on life. To understand the concept of meekness. Many people just misunderstand meekness. They don't understand what it is. Meekness, a simple, a simple man's definition, is meekness is power under control. When we look in Scripture, we see that Jesus was meek. Jesus, powerful, God of all the universe, yet he was meek. He took that power that he had and he used it graciously and wisely, because he had perspective on his creation. He taught that we are to be servants. You know, leadership inside of the world is about power. People want to be in leadership because they like being in power. And I'm told that, uh, that people get drunk on power. They become, they, they become intoxicated with the power that they have. They may start out wanting to do things right, but when they get in leadership and they find out that they have power over individuals, they have power over events, they crave that power because they are not regenerated. But those who are disciples of Christ who are in power, are not called to lord it over people, but to be servants to those with whom they are to, uh, to disciple, and those who are put in their charge. Adam reminded us, uh, as we talked about this very discussion, uh, of, of how important it is for leaders to understand their position. You know, if we look at the book of Mark, for example, in Mark chapter 10, here we have a description of the, uh, of the disciples coming at this whole issue of power, um, you know, from a human perspective, because they were still trying to understand it all. Jesus was very much, although they spent three years with him, was, was very much uh, uh, an enigma to them. They didn't quite understand all of the things that he talked about and the things that he did. And so you might remember in Mark 10, they were having this discussion. The two, the two brothers were having this discussion, and they, uh, they, they wanted to know if they could sit in, in positions of honor. Jesus said that, so, so verse 30, 38... Um, well, let's go before that. Then uh, verse uh, 35. Then James and John, the, the sons of Debedee, came over and said to him, Teacher, um, we want you to do us a favor. 
kind of, you know, taking them aside and say, can, can you think about this? You know, planting that thought there. What is it? He asked. In your glorious kingdom, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, they said, one on the right and one on the left. <laughs> wow. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. You, are you able to drink from the, the bitter cup of sorrow that I'm about to drink from? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they said, we're able. <laughs> wow. Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup and be baptized by my baptism. But I have no right to say who will sit on the throne with me. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Now when the other ten disciples discovered what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Probably because... James and John beat them to it. <laughs> but, but isn't that the way that the world works and thinks? You know, can I, can I sit in a special place beside you? Can I ride in the front seat with you? You know? Who's got a shotgun? You know, can I, can I have a special place near you? That's the way the world thinks. Jesus responds to them that, that that is not the way it is to be in God's kingdom. You know that in the world there are tyrants and officials. They lord it over people that are beneath them. But amongst you, it must be quite different. Whoever wants to be a leader amongst you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave for even I, the Son of Man, did not come to, uh, to be served, but to serve others, and I will give my life as a ransom for many. The call that is set before the church, then, and church leaders, is that we are no longer to act as the world would act. Remember that we have died to self. We have died to the world. And we now live to bring glory to Christ. So our thinking, as it is changed, we come to Scripture to learn what it means to be a servant, what it means to be in leadership. If you go to First uh, Timothy and you go to Titus, where it outlines the traits that are to be exhibited by leaders within the church, these traits are leaders uh, for our leaders are traits which are, are traits of uh, servanthood and of demonstration of the life that they are to have in Christ as those who are righteous. Because, see, the thing is, is that we are being prepared to live into eternity. We are being prepared for, to live in a new heaven and a new earth. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, you're going to find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul clearly outlines that this earth that we know today will be destroyed. I'm all about the concept of uh, stewardship, 
and of taking care of those things that are around us and being responsible for those things. But let me clearly under, let you understand that as a theologian, I cannot, nor will I ever be an environmentalist. I cannot be a tree hugger because I know that this world will be destroyed. I know that God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what I'm being prepared for, is to live in that new heaven and that new earth, which is no longer corrupted by sin. Remember, if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we look at, in the book of Genesis where it tells us what happened when, when Adam took the fruit from Eve and he partook of it, going against the command of God, all of creation suffered. And all of creation is now racked with sin. And all of creation, therefore, in the new heaven and the new earth, the old must be destroyed. Just as you as individuals, when you were baptized, died to sin, so God will carry that out in destroying this earth and all of creation to create a new heaven and a new earth. My friends, the church, the bride of Christ, is being prepared to live in that new heaven and new earth. That is what we have to look forward to. Because that is God's design. We are now in the process of becoming what we are called to be, a holy and righteous people. Because in Christ's blood, we are set apart. You see, you may not realize or know it, but the Apostle Paul alludes to and clearly reminds us that leaders within the church are going to judge and that, and that judgment is, is part of the responsibility that is going to be there. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Now when you have something against another Christian, why do you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of making it, uh, taking it to other believers uh, to decide who is right? Don't you know that someday we Christians are going to judge the world? You are going to be in a position of judgment. I hear so many people today say, you know, oh, I can't judge that. Everybody, you know, has their own way of doing things. No. No. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word says that we are going to be in a position of judgment over the world that we today are to be in a position of judgment over the church and ecclesiastical matters. Leadership in the church demands that those who are called to leadership remember that they are set aside as a holy and righteous people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, we are called to be holy, for He is holy. 
We are made holy by the blood of Christ, but we are learning that process. And so as leadership within the church, we must constantly be learning what it means to live in a holy and righteous manner. So that when there is sin inside of the church, the leadership is competent to judge that sin. When there is cleansing that needs to take place, leadership is competent to to allow for that cleansing to take place because it is in the church that we are called to be pure and righteous because we are preparing to lead and to live in a new heaven and a new earth. That's amazing. But that's what we're called to. And that needs to be a part of understanding who we are. The Apostle Paul calls boldness to church leaders in dealing with sin in the church, just as Peter called for there to be holiness and righteousness. Leaders in the church are to lead from God's perspective, not man's perspective, but from God's perspective, understanding that the world we live in is a world which is called to judgment. We are called to live with God's perspective in love, as servants before God, but in love. You know the word here that's used for love? You know, there are several words in Scripture. The two most common are agape and uh, phileo. Here, the word agape is used. We are called to live in love in how we interact with our brothers and sisters. But my friends, love is not the touchy-feely that the world would have us to understand. In Scripture, the word agape means that which is better or in the best interest of the person to whom the love is directed. That means when you love somebody, there may need to be sacrifice involved. There may need to be judgment involved. There may need to be provision involved. Because you're interested in that person's best interest. And you're interested in, as a church leader, you're interested in the body of Christ, that the body of Christ be strengthened as we all learn to live to bring glory and honor and praise to God. We are to keep Christ in our focus. That is how we are to live. We're no longer to be concerned with the concerns that the world has. But we need to be preparing ourselves for what it means to live in a new heaven and a new earth. Devoid of all sin. Devoid of all corruption. The resurrection of Christ, that willing sacrifice that he made, it was needed for us to be cleansed. It was needed for us to be prepared for being a part of that new heaven and that new earth. Jesus Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. In other words, he was the substitutory sacrifice that needed to be made. But there was a plan, I hope you see as we've discussed this, that it just didn't happen in a chaotic fashion. But God planned from the very beginning that these are the steps that would be taken. 
And that he was going to call out and separate for himself a new people. And if you're a disciple of Christ, you are a part of that new people. And so when he comes back and he returns, he will not return as a servant. He will not return as somebody who allows himself to be mocked. He will not return in submission to the world, but he will return in power and in glory. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 paints a very different picture of this Jesus character who the world so loves to mock because they don't understand him. But Scripture clearly reminds us that when he returns in his glory, it will in fact be glorious. Chapter 19. Verse 11, let me read for you, starting, uh, going to 16, then we'll jump over to 21. And then I saw the heaven open, and I saw a white horse standing there. The one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly, and then goes to war. His eyes were bright like flames of fire. His head... There were many crowns. A name was written on him, the, and only he knew what it meant. He was clothed in a robe dri- dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in pure lin- white linen, followed him on white horses, for from his mouth came a sharp sword, and with this he struck down the nations, and he ruled them with an iron rod, and he trod the winepress of the fierce wrath of the Almighty God. And on his robe and thigh were written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me jump over to um, 21, verses 1 through 7. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember, I told you it's coming. It's coming. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. You, as the sanctified body of Christ, will be in that new heaven and the new earth. That is what you are preparing for. That is where your direction needs to be. New heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and all the seas were gone and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven in a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now amongst his people. And he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he will remove all their sorrows, and there will be no more death, and no sorrow or crying and pain. For the old world and its evils are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for I tell you this, for it is trustworthy and true. 
But he said, it is finished. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, come to the springs of the water of life without charge. And to all who are victorious, they will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's what we have to look forward to. Living in a new heaven and a new earth, with a new Jerusalem. There will be no more sorrow, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more affliction. For those who are older, like me, you should rejoice. Because all those aches and pains you struggle with now, Lord knows I got them. More, more, more and more all the time as time passes. They will be gone. For those of you who, who, who struggle with all kinds of afflictions, Deafness, arthritis, uh, blood issues as to how your body processes things, broken bones, diabetes, kidney problems, all these afflictions which are ours today because of our, because of our bodies which are subject to this world will no longer be for God will give us a new body so that we might live in a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we look forward to. This is what we set our eyes on, not the things that are happening today. Let me read you one more thing from Revelation. Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 19, verses 5 um, five through eight. And from the throne came a voice, praise our God, all of his servants, from the least to the greatest, who all fear him. And then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a huge crowd or the roar of a mighty oceans and the crash of a loud thunder. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and honor him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She is permitted to wear the finest white linen, for this white linen represents the good deeds done by the people of God. Do you know who the bride of Christ is? You. You are the bride of Christ. And you are being prepared to live in heaven. And that preparedness starts here. This is where you learn how it is that you're how to walk and to talk and to act like one who is set apart from the world. So we can no longer be doing things the way the world does. We can no longer be thinking the way the world does. Leaders inside of the church are called to separate themselves and set that example that those they lead might be able to follow. 
Believe me, Scripture indicates very clearly that there will be a judgment for people who are in leadership who fail to fulfill their responsibilities and prepare the masses to be the bride of Christ they are called to be. Leaders are called to guide the church in how it is that they are to lead, uh, live separated from the world's thinking, that we are called to be a holy and righteous people. And so leaders teach sound doctrine, and they are bold in their pursuit of the truth of God, willing to call to task those who would fail to live up to that calling. This is what Jesus has called us to, for we are a bride being prepared for a groom to live in a new heaven and a new earth. The first step in all of this is that we recognize that this is where we are, that we are to come to God in a restored relationship, and that we are to live in that restored relationship. So before you were covered by the blood of Christ, you lived as one who lived for self. Now, when, as you are covered by the blood of Christ, you are no longer to live for self. And you are no longer to act in your own self-interest, but you are to act in the interest of those who look up to you and who are following after you. Those called to leadership have an awesome and challenging responsibility before them. If you are a leader, you are called to holy living, to understanding what it means to be representing God's truth before the world. You are to live as a servant towards those who are under your charge. And you are to be bold towards the future that is awaiting you in Jesus Christ. If you're not a leader, you're, you're after listening to that, you're going, man, glad I'm not a leader. That's tough. Your call, your call is just as challenging. Because you are to look at your leaders and to pray for them for the awesome responsibility they have. You, just because you're not currently in your maturity at a point where you take on leadership, you still have been set apart because of your relationship to God. You've taken those initial steps which are necessary to set yourself apart. You repented. You were baptized. You have begun to take on a new way of thinking. And thus, because you have a new way of thinking, you're beginning to change the way that you live. It is a process by which we are called, whether you're in leadership or not. And we are called that to that because we are the bride of Christ being prepared to live in eternity. 
You need to pray for those who are in leadership. You need to support those who are working on your behalf. You need to learn what it is, how the Holy Spirit works in your life. You need to understand the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need to understand the equipping of the Holy Spirit with the spiritual gifts that you have that you might allow the body of Christ to function correctly. If you don't know how to do that, shameless plug, listen to Truth Time with Pastor Monty because I have just covered all of this in some detail. Or read the wonderful publication that Josh wrote several years ago which breaks it down. We are called to be a people that have a forward way of thinking. And this means that we support those who are working in the body that we might be strengthened. As we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, uh, it is because of Christ's victory over sin and over death that we are no longer a hopeless and pitiful people. On the contrary, we have much to rejoice over. Our futures are not dark. When you talk to millennials and you talk to those that come after, what are they called? They're the X-Gens and whatever they are. Um, they're, they're hopeless. They look at the stuff that's going on and they have no hope. You look at all the political stuff that's going on. Let me tell you. Uh, you know, I'm somewhat of a, a political junkie. So I love talking politics. I think, that, I think that two of the most fascinating subjects in the world, which the world says that you cannot talk about, religion and politics, don't go there. They're the most fun subjects to talk about. But sometimes, even I have to turn off the TV and go, I can't take anymore. My brain is saturated with all of this nonsense that is going on. What's going to happen with all of this? It's going to be gone. Because God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and that's where my focus needs to be. This stuff that goes on around us, it's interesting, but how am I living? What am I doing? How am I preparing myself for the kingdom of God of which I am a part and of which we is coming? We have a message of hope because of the work of Christ on the cross. We definitely are even more than hopeful because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because He overcame death. That means as we associate with Him, we too have overcome death. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians as a reminder. We are going to live forever and ever and ever, and in so doing, we will be able to praise and bring honor to our Lord Jesus Christ Forever and ever and ever. That is what we have to look forward to. And that is an exciting future that God holds for us. May God bless you as you absorb all of this.